how to pray when we have sinned. That's the focus of our sermon this morning. How to pray when we have sinned. This is the seventh and final message in a series of messages on repentance titled, I have sinned, sign of false or true repentance. We've been taking a break through the Gospel of Matthew and been doing this little series on repentance. And we've seen over the last six messages, uh, many subjects related to repentance. In the first two messages, we saw 10 characteristics of false repentance. And then in the next two We saw what the Old Testament has to say about repentance and what the New Testament has to say about repentance. And then in the last uh, two sermons, we looked at seven characteristics of true repentance from 2 Corinthians chapter 7. So I thought it would benefit us to complete this series on repentance by asking and answering one simple and yet very essential and beneficial question. How to pray when we have sinned. Since prayer in its basic sense is an acknowledgement of our need for God's help, it just makes sense, it makes sense to know how to rightly pray in keeping with God's word when we have sinned, no matter what the sin may be. How do we pray when we have fallen short of God's standard? And as I was Uh, Reflecting on it and searching the scriptures, again and again my mind kept coming back to one passage of uh, scripture. One um, excellent passage in my opinion that the Holy Spirit has put in the Bible when it comes to praying in a way that pleases God when we have sinned. It's a very familiar passage and a passage that I personally have preached out of more than one occasion in this uh, congregation. But this time I'm approaching this passage with a different perspective. I'm going to look at it strictly from a perspective of helping us when we have sinned. So what is this passage I'm talking about? Psalm 51. Many of you may have already moved to Psalm 51 in anticipation uh, because this is one of the one of the excellent passages in all of the scriptures that helps us when we have sinned. It's page 813 in the church Bibles here. Psalm 51, page 813. Psalm 51 is one of the most often read psalm by God's people when they have sinned and turned to God out of deep brokenness. It's been rightly called as a sinner's guide and has been described as the gem of all psalms and contains instructions so large and doctrines so precious that the tongue of angels could not do justice to the full development of it. Alexander McLaren, a preacher of old, rightly said, only divine love can extract sweet perfumes of brokenness and praise out of the filth of sin. And that's exactly what this psalm does for us. Sweet perfumes of brokenness and praise out of the filth of sin. David, the greatest king, to have ever ruled Israel until the greater David. Jesus Christ himself will come to rule under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And this, the historical background of this psalm, and he writes that for us right at the beginning of the psalm. If you notice under Psalm 51, we have it for the director of music, which means this is a psalm that David says is to be sung by God's 
people. That the worship leader is to lead God's people to sing this beautiful psalm. And he gives the background. It's a psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. So we have the setting here, the historical background. What caused David to pen this psalm? A man after God's own heart, the greatest king, commits adultery with a married woman in Bathsheba. She was the wife of Uriah, a faithful soldier in David's army. While Uriah was there fighting for David, David was here stealing what belonged to Uriah. As a result of his sexual immorality, Bathsheba got pregnant. And so David tried to cover up his sin. He used lies, deceit, manipulation. When everything failed, he had Uriah killed. And then he married Bathsheba. David thought he had covered his sins very well. Sins of adultery, sins of lying, sins of stealing, sins of coveting, sins of murder. There's just a handful. He thought he covered it up very well. But he forgot that God was watching. And God was extremely displeased with David. So God, through the prophet Nathan, confronted David about his sin nearly a year or so after this incident. The entire story, you can read about it in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and chapter 12. It goes to show that even though God may allow his own to commit sin, even the wickedest of sins, God will not allow them to stay in it without confessing and turning from it eventually. He hid it. He thought he did a good job of covering up. What he covered, God God uncovered. So now, David is bearing his soul out to God. And out of that situation comes this beautiful, beautiful psalm. And when Nathan confronted David, he immediately confessed, I have sinned against the Lord. Second Samuel chapter 12 verse 13. And following his confession, David writes this beautiful psalm. Uh, it's, it's really a prayer, a prayer of genuine confession and repentance. Now, as I said, I want to look at this psalm from a different perspective in order to help us to pray when we have sinned. So what I've done is I've broken this entire psalm as three main petitions, under three headings, three main petitions that David makes in this psalm. Each petition sort of builds on the previous one as we move through this psalm. And by breaking this down as three points or three petitions, I hope, I hope it will help us to make this as our own prayer when we sin. I'll give you the three petitions up front so that you have in the back of your mind and then we'll work our way briefly through each of them. Here's petition number one. David prays which you and I can consider praying when we sin. Lord, please forgive and cleanse me. That's verses one through nine. Lord, please forgive and cleanse me. Here's petition number two. Lord, please change me. Verses 10 through 12. Forgive and cleanse me. Change me. And thirdly, Lord, please use me. Verses 13 through 19. 
See that there's a progression to it. When we are in sin, we need to have God forgive and cleanse us. Then we need to, we need Him to change us. And then we should go back and say, I want you to use me. Because that's the purpose for which I have been created and being recreated in Jesus Christ. Let's start with the first petition of a genuinely repentant heart. Lord, please forgive and cleanse me. Notice how David starts out his prayer in the first part of verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy. That's the opening words of his prayer here. That's the right way for sinners to approach a holy God, a just judge, an attitude of humility. Have mercy. He's not seeking justice here. He dare not seek justice because he knows if I seek justice, I'll be doomed. So he seeks mercy. Withhold from me the punishment that I justly deserve. Have mercy. But notice on what basis David makes his plea for mercy. Continue reading through verse 1. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. You see, David's appeal to God to forgive his sin was based on God's character, especially two attributes, unfailing love, great compassion. David was well aware of God's revelation of himself to Moses Way back in Exodus 34 verse 6, as God, Moses prayed, God, show me your glory. God says, you know, I let my glory pass by. And as that was happening, Moses heard this voice from heaven. Here's God describing himself in this manner. The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Exodus 34 verses 6 through 7. This is God's self-disclosure of himself. And David was well aware. So it's based on, God based on you, here saying that You're a compassionate, a gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. God, even though my sin is great, I, a terrible sinner, come to you, pleading for mercy and forgiveness because of who you are, a compassionate, gracious and loving God who forgives the sin of all who come to you in genuine repentance and faith. He goes to God based on God. Notice how he pleads for forgiveness and cleansing from his sin in the last part of verse 1 and all of verse 2. He says, Blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Would you notice the three words he uses here? To describe sin. First of all, he used the word transgression. It pictures a spirit of defiant disobedience against God. Because David could not plead ignorance. He knew very well. He defiantly disobeyed God when he went and plundered Bathsheba. He literally shook his fist against God. He used the word iniquity. It pictures a perversion. A distortion of that which is straight. God has designed marriage a certain way. Sexual sins outside of that is something that's abominable in God's sight. I have perverted 
that which you've created to be a good thing, God. And then he uses the generic word sin, missing the mark. Now what's interesting is this, even though Nathan had told him that God forgave him, 2 Samuel chapter 12 verse 13, the truly broken David still cries out to God in a very personal and intense manner. God has pronounced forgiveness, still he goes and pleads with him. Not that he doubts God, but that's what a broken sinner does. He is just, all the 10, 11 months of hiding, covering up, the dam is now opened. He breaks open before God. He's bawling his eyes out, so to speak. Probably on the floor, weeping and sobbing. Have you ever done that ever in your life? Convicted of sin? Broken. Just pouring your heart out before the Lord. David does that here. That's why he's using all the words you could think of in describing his act as evil in God's sight. Not only does he do that, David does another thing in these verses, which is the need to be cleansed of the polluting effects of sin. See, usually when we sin, we ask for forgiveness and we move on quickly. Because our focus is, I don't want to deal with the negative consequences, God, or my conscience is convicting me, so I need to at least ask for forgiveness and move on. But what David is doing here, as the Holy Spirit prompted him to do, is this. He not only is seeking forgiveness, but he's pleading for cleansing from the defiling effect of sin and the guilt it produces. He says, I'm just, just, I'm not just looking for forgiveness. I want a cleansing. That's very important. Notice again how he uses three words to describe his desire to be completely clean. Not just forgiveness, but also clean. He used the word blot. That pictures the rubbing out of a debt in an account book. Completely rub it out. Wash pictures the idea of washing a stain out of a garment. Cleanse. The, the, the word has certain uh, ceremonial connotations to it. It's like, God, I want you to not look at me as a leper. Because as I have sinned, I'm a moral leper in your sight. I want you to pronounce the purification that I'm offering to you through this blood sacrifice. I want you to pronounce me clean. Ceremonially, he's clean. He's cleansed, so to speak, of his sin. I mean, all three words have the same desired result that David wants. And what is it? Completely clean from the polluting effects of sin. He's talking about his sin. He's talking about his need for forgiveness as well as cleansing. We talk about forgiveness a lot, but we don't ask God to cleanse us. And then in verse 3, he goes on to show one of the key requirements of true confession. Sinners must clearly acknowledge their sin. Sinners must acknowledge their sin. Notice what he says, For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. There is not an ounce of self-justification here. The words, I know my transgression, my sin, always before me, all show that David fully claimed responsibility for his actions. Like the so-called prodigal son in Luke 15, verse 18, he laid a heavy burden on himself. And remember, this is after God had pronounced him forgiven. 
I need to say it, God. I need to own up to my sin. Sometimes, as quickly as we can grab that forgiveness, we take it and we run. But David says, no, no, no. I want this to sink into me. I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. It's there. I walk in the balcony. I can see it. I look at my bed. I can see it. I look at my army. I can see it. I see it. I see it. My sin is always before me. His sin bothered him so much because above all he knew his sin was first and foremost against a holy God. You remember when Joseph was tempted in the Old Testament, Genesis 39, when Mrs. Potiphar kept on harassing him to come and sleep with him. One of the things he said was, how can I do this and sin, this great sin against God? It's a great sin against God. When we understand every sin at the core is first and foremost a sin against our Creator and if we are believers, our Redeemer, we will acknowledge. We will take full responsibility for our sins. And that's another evidence of a Holy Spirit-prompted confession to see our sin mainly as an offense against God. Sometimes we sin and what we say, well, no one gets hurt. That's what the world does. No one gets hurt. There's always one who gets hurt. Always. Minimum one. That's the creator. David understood that. That's why he says in the first part of verse 4, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Did not David know that he sinned against Uriah, against Bathsheba, against his parents, his family, and the nation? Sexual sin sometimes has a much larger consequence than others. Of course David knew all that. But also David knew sin is first and foremost a sin against a holy God. Again, notice how he uses the words sin, evil in verse 4 to indicate his deep heartbreak. He doesn't sugarcoat his words, does he? He doesn't use words like, oh, this is my weakness, my struggle, my propensity, my disability. When it comes to sin, he plainly calls it the way God calls it, sin, transgression, iniquity. Part of true confession, call it what God calls it. We sugarcoat it to make it sound nice to us. And the very fact we do it that way is because we really don't want to give up that sin. You want to receive God's forgiveness, call it what it is. That's a starting point. One author puts it this way, many cannot find forgiveness for sin. They suffer for years with a guilty conscience because they are not willing to come to the place where they acknowledge their sin. They will not call it what God calls it. They all tend to cover up their sin and make it sound nicer than it is. They use pleasant names to describe it. They have one list of terms to describe sin in their life, but an entirely different list to describe the same sin in others. Others have prejudices, but they have convictions. 
Others have a foul temper. They are seized with righteous indignation. Thus they try to cover up their sins. But David is done covering his sin. He wants relief. He wants to be restored. So he starts to pour out his heart with the true acknowledgement of his sin, which is the first step in receiving divine forgiveness. You see, God's forgiveness is available to everyone, but is experienced only by those who admit their guilt and go to him for mercy. To be found, we must first acknowledge that we are lost. Only those who recognize I am blind can receive sight. You say you are not blind, so your sin remains. That was Jesus' rebuke to the Pharisees in John 9. Notice David not only takes full responsibility for his sin, for his evil actions, but he also sides with God against him in his confession. Look at the second part of verse 4. After saying, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. David is imagining this courtroom. Lord, even if I take this case to court, guess what? You're going to be proved you're right. I'm the one that's in the wrong, not you. And David is vehemently defending God for judging him. Because God through the prophet Nathan would tell him in three ways God would judge David. Number one, the sword won't leave his home. The child that was born out of that relationship would die. And third, his own concubines will be ravaged publicly. Absalom would sleep with them later on. Despite receiving that judgment, David still says, you're right. Even in this judgment, you are right. He takes sides with God against himself. What do we typically do? We bring people with us to take sides inadvertently, at least we think, against God. Isn't this wrong? We say, for God to be so hard on me. But David says, you're going to be proved right, Lord. This is you, Your verdict is right. I am the guilty one. You are the innocent one. That's what a, when the Holy Spirit works in us, we will start seeing ourselves the way God sees us. The way God sees us. The way God sees our sin. We won't be blaming God. In fact, we'd be awed at His mercy. God never does anything that is wrong. Never does anything that is wrong. In Deuteronomy 32 verse 4, this is how God is described. He is the rock. His works are perfect and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. God never makes mistakes, even when it comes to his judgment. A truly broken heart will not blame God for receiving the punishment it deserves. Like Nehemiah, it would say, in all that has happened to us, you have remained righteous, you have acted faithfully, while we acted wickedly. Nehemiah 9 verse 33. Daniel prays along the same lines in Daniel 9 verse 14. And the psalmist also does the same thing in Psalm 119 verse 137. Never blaming God, but taking full responsibility for our since remember the repentant thief on the cross he starts out reviling Jesus but then he takes 
sides with Jesus. He says, this man is innocent. He tells the other, we justly deserve the punishment. He is innocent. After shielding God from any possible blame, David now moves to the next step in seeing sin problem. He knew that his sin with Bathsheba, sin of adultery, lying, murder that came up later on was not just a one-time accident but was an accurate reflection of what he was capable of doing at all the time. Why? Because David knew, I'm a sinner by birth and a sinner by nature. David had a right view of a sin nature. That's why he said in verse 5, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. David knew that he was not a sinner because he committed sin, but that he sinned because he came into this world as a sinner. That cute little baby starts out as a cute little sinner. Shaking its fist against God. David is not indicating his conception was something that was sinful, but just the fact that ever since Adam and Eve fell, everyone comes into this world with a corrupt nature. Thank God for his mercy. We're not as evil as we possibly could be all the time. He restrains us. He restrains us. But David understood, my whole nature is corrupt. You forgive me, you cleanse me, but as I look at the future, I got a big problem here, God. Because I see what your requirement is. Verse 6, Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. There is no place where God does not require us to be faithful. There is no vacation from holiness. David understood that. Just, how am I going to live up to this standard in the future, God? I'm guilty. I can never live up to your standard, and I can never cleanse myself. I just don't have that in me. Only you can do it for me, and you must do it. So I'm coming to you, asking you with that. That's why he cries in verse 7, cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Hyssop was this small bush-like plant. like Think like a, a pack of spinach or broccoli, except it's got leaves. So what they would do is they would take that, and when an animal was sacrificed, they take the blood of the animal, put it in a bowl. They would dip this little leafy bunch and sprinkle it on people. So the idea what David is saying here is this. I know my sin requires a blood sacrifice and that's the only way I could be cleansed. You do that for me. It's not in that uh, hyssop or in the blood as such. It's in how you have ordained the whole thing. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for sins. So you cleanse me through the means of a blood sacrifice. That's what David is crying out here. And then I will be clean. We cannot fix our lives. We just don't have it in us to buy forgiveness. It's amazing, isn't it? People sell forgiveness. You can't. You want God's forgiveness? It's to be received as a gift by faith in Jesus Christ. Just, you cleanse me, I'll be clean. You wash me, I'll be whiter than snow. 
crimson blood, red blood of Jesus, washes away all our sins and makes us white as snow. That's the only means God uses to make us clean. David here takes God at his word because God has, has said, bring an animal sacrifice by faith, offer it. I will provide a covering for your sin. So by faith, David took God at his word. That's what he's doing here. You and you alone, God, can make me clean. David knew that with God, even the greatest of sinners have hope if only they acknowledge their sin and turn from it. But David had covered up his sin for such a long time. There were some consequences. He lost physical health as a result of God physically disciplining him. Not only that, he couldn't rejoice in anything which was part of God emotionally disciplining him. That's why he cried out in verse 8, let me hear joy and gladness. He wasn't having any joy. A believer who's walking in sin, unconfessed sin, lacks joy. You can see sometimes in people's faces. They're drifting. They don't want to open up to people just hiding in that sin. No joy emotionally. And second, physically also, sometimes God will discipline us. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Psalm 32, Psalm 38, other Psalms talk about the likelihood of David undergoing some severe physical chastening. He says, I cannot bear this anymore. Why am I hiding this? Why am I holding this back? Why am I not just following what your word says? I confess my sin. I can experience the joy, the rejoicing. He couldn't bear it anymore. Once again, he cries out to be forgiven and cleansed of his sins. Look at, look at what he says. Hide your face, verse 9, from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Hide your face. Put my sin far away from your sight. Remove it, but also cleanse me of the effects of that sin. So again, you see, forgive me and cleanse me. Blot out all my iniquity. Wipe it out away from your book. So that's the first petition David makes here. Lord, please forgive and cleanse me. And cleanse me. We too must go with that same approach when we have sinned. Not just go to God for forgiveness, but go with the desire. I want this to be completely gone. You know, sometimes if you have a flood in your basement, if you have drywall, it soaks for let's say the bottom portion and the idea is you know cut that portion out or if it's been sitting for a while completely take the whole thing out why you don't want any remains of mold it's not just cutting that little piece put something you i don't want any remains of that in my house take it out david is doing that here lord not just forgive me Cleanse me. That should be our prayer. Lord, I come to you to completely get rid of the sin as well as the effects of that sin. But David doesn't stop with that petition alone. He's already acknowledged, if you look at verses 5 and 6, that God's demands are that he be blameless all the time, but he's got a problem because of his sin nature. 
David knew he was prone to falling into, if not the same sin, something else in the future, no matter how hard he tried. To borrow the words of Jeremiah from Jeremiah chapter 13 and verse 23, David knew that just as an Ethiopian cannot change the color of his skin and a leopard cannot take away its spots, sinners who are prone to doing evil cannot start doing good, live obedient lives on their own. Sinners need God to help them to change, to remain obedient to his commands. That is why he goes on to present his second petition, verses 10 through 12, which is, Lord, please change me. You forgive me and cleanse me, now change me. Look at verse 10, where he says, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Interesting, isn't it? David doesn't ask for a clean body. What was the sin? Main sin was sin of adultery. He took his body and united that with the person she should not be uniting it with. So wouldn't you think David should pray, create in me a pure body? But David asked for a clean heart. Why? Because David knew well that the, the body commits only what the mind has already planned to do. Starts on the inside. Genesis 6.5 this is the verdict on mankind. Every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Jesus, years after David would say in Matthew 15, verse 19 to the Pharisees, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. And David knew he didn't have the power to change his own heart from sinful inclinations to pure motives and pure thoughts. So he pleads with God, Lord, you change me. You create in me a pure heart or keep changing my heart. Keep making it pure. And you renew a steadfast spirit within me. That word renew has the idea of restoring or repairing. Meaning you fix my inner spirit, Lord that desires, you fix it so that I won't stray away from your commands. You give me this attitude that says, no wavering, no compromise, no matter how great the trial is, how great the temptation is. You give me this kind of a resolve. I cannot do it on my own. He knew only a pure heart can help him from committing the sin again. So he goes to God. See, often we focus only on the past act when it comes to sin. We don't focus on the future. Meaning we don't focus on, what do I need to do to make sure I don't do this again? We don't think too much about it. Perhaps because we're not ready to give up that sin. Why make us an even more of a liar when we don't have the desire to turn from that sin? Or we feel... I just don't have the strength to overcome this because I've fallen over and over. So we give up. Both are wrong. We must go to God constantly and keep asking Him, change me, change me, change me. God delights to do that. Not only do I want you to forgive and cleanse me, but I want you to change me. He knew as long as he walked in sin, he lost the joyful fellowship he had with God. David wasn't close with God anymore. And he didn't like being in that position. So in order for him to have that joy back, in order to avoid living this joyless life, he once again affirms his need for God to change him. 
Look at his prayer in verses 11 through 12. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. When David prayed, do not take your Holy Spirit from me, he was not afraid of losing his salvation as some have supposed. David's cry here must be understood in the light of the role of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was still the agent of regeneration. But the Holy Spirit, the the Old Testament does not talk about the Holy Spirit indwelling every believer permanently. The Holy Spirit came upon certain select individuals to anoint them for special acts of service. Moses and 70 elders in Numbers 11 verses 17 through 25 were, were given that ability to govern the people. Later Joshua and the judges and even David's predecessor, predecessor Saul had that same anointing. David saw how God removed that anointing from Saul because he lived in disobedience. David didn't want that to happen to him. So he says, don't cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit away from me. He was not afraid of losing his salvation, but he was afraid of losing his ability, the empowering and guiding presence of the Holy Spirit for him to function. And a Christian living in the New Testament does not need to fear losing the Holy Spirit because the Lord would never remove his spirit from within us. That's his promise in John 14 verse 16. Jesus said, I will send another helper, referring to the Holy Spirit, who will come and live inside of you forever. Yes, we can quench the spirit. We can grieve the Holy Spirit. We can even be set aside from ministry due to our sin. 1 Corinthians 9.27, disqualified. But the Holy Spirit will never be removed from the true believer. Who are the true believers who keep going back to God, asking him, forgive me, cleanse me, change me. So we don't need to pray that prayer. That line always bothers me in that song. That's why in our songbook we made a little tweak there. We don't need to pray, take your Holy Spirit away from me. That doesn't mean we're casual about the Holy Spirit or casual about sin. But David's prayer must be understood in the context in which it's given. And notice, David did not cry out because he feared he lost his salvation. Look at verse 12. He makes it very clear here. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. He doesn't say restore to me salvation. See, when we live in sin, the joy is lost. And the only way for the joy to come back is through confession and repentance. So that's what David is saying. Now that I've confessed, now that I'm turning from my sin, give that joy back to me. I tell you, many believers don't have the joy of the Lord or experience the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit because they continue to have unconfessed sin in their life. That's not a good state to be in. Like David, we should have this desire. I want to be in ongoing joyful fellowship with God. And the only way for that to happen is to keep praying to God to forgive and cleanse us of our sins and also to keep asking him to change us from the inside out, create in me a clean heart so that I might have a clean body. We perfect holiness, body and spirit, the fear of the Lord, Second Corinthians 7, 1. And this is the way you do it, inside out. And we can believe that God 
not only has the power, but is willing to help us to yield to the control of the Holy Spirit if we keep asking him to change us. So two petitions so far we see David making here that we can make all the time. Please forgive and cleanse me. That's where we start. And then please change me. There's one person I'm disgusted with. That's me, Lord. I am my own worst enemy, we say, right? You are your own worst enemy. We are our own worst enemies sometimes. That's why we need to go to him to change us. Thirdly, and lastly, verses 13 through 19, this is the prayer that David prays. Lord, please use me. Please use me. You see, God created us not so that we can live for ourselves, but for others. And sin destroys that fundamental purpose because sin is what? Seeking to be selfish. I want what I want. It doesn't matter at what cost I get it. I must have it. It's the very antithesis of the life we are called to live. Others. But when sin is forgiven and cleansed, and when we are continually being changed by the Holy Spirit to become like Christ, we will automatically want to fulfill the purpose for which God has put us on earth. That is why David in his final prayer prays, God, use me. Now that the sin is removed, put away. It's, there's a cleansing is done. Now that I'm asking you to change me, I'm also asking you, Lord, use me. And, and David's prayer is focused in God using him in three spheres, which is applicable to all of us. Sphere number one, we are called to be a blessing to unbelievers on the horizontal side. Second, we're called to bring praise to God. That's the vertical one. And then David comes back to the third one, which is another horizontal aspect, being a blessing to believers. That's love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. The neighbor is two groups, believers and unbelievers. So David says, I want you to use me in all these three spheres. Pay close attention as we get closer to wrapping this sermon up. Look at, look at verse 12, David's prayer in terms of the responsibility towards unbelievers. Lord, if you forgive me, if you cleanse me, if you keep changing me, then, verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. You see, when we are living in unconfessed sin, when we have our hearts polluted by sin, our fellowship is lost with God, we lack joy because God is chastening us. And when we are in that state, the last thing on our minds is to share the gospel with someone. We won't do it. Our lips are sealed. We're of no benefit to unbelievers. David was in such a position. But now he's telling God, now that I've done all these things, Lord, now, you, based on your word, I'm ready now to teach transgressors your ways. Sinners will turn back to you. Meaning, I will tell unbelievers, there is forgiveness with you, even for the worst of sins, if a sinner is willing to repent and come. He can tell, this is what I did. Yes, there were some earthly consequences, but he forgave me. You, 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 come. You can experience that forgiveness too. It's available. Come and drink of the forgiveness that Jesus gives this free water he gives that gives you life. Come. David could now say that. That's what 
That's what he's doing here. And that should be our desire as well. Jesus has left us on earth to be his witnesses. But how can we be his witnesses if we're living in sin? Put the sin away. No. God will open our lips. And we can tell everyone about this great savior we have. Sin affects our evangelistic efforts. But confession, repentance, renewed empowering of the Holy Spirit removes the block and helps us to be faithful witnesses of Jesus. Look at the second sphere of David's and our responsibility that focuses on the vertical aspect which is rendering acceptable worship to God. When we're living in sin, our worship is not acceptable to God. Sin must be put away for God to accept our worship. David as a man of God the sweet psalmist of Israel knew the importance of worship, offering praise, offering sacrifices, not just animal sacrifices, but through our lips. But because of his unconfessed sin, his lips were sealed. That once used and worn out harp was hanging on that willow tree. He needs to get that down. And the only way he can get that down is by having his sins forgiven and cleansed and by God changing him. So he's done that. Now, he says, I'm ready. Now that I've confessed to you, God, I'm ready. Look at verses 14 through 17. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. Because David was guilty. David was a murderer. Guilty of killing Uriah. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are God, my Savior. And my tongue will sing of your righteousness. You wipe the slate clean, Lord. I can start proclaiming about what a right God you are. A perfect God. A just God who does no wrong. Open my lips, Lord. The very fact he's saying open my lips means his lips were sealed. But now he can ask God to open his lips because he's confessed. And my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. It wasn't that God did not Required sacrifices in the Old Testament. Of course God did. In fact, God gave one full book, Leviticus, to describe the kind of sacrifices one must offer. But God also said, just offering sacrifices without the right heart attitude is meaningless. So that right heart attitude has to be there, which means sin has to be put away. Now I've done that. Because I'm coming to you with a broken and a contrite heart. That's the most important thing. I'm coming and offering that to you because that pleases you. That's my way to worship you, God. One of the ways God ordained for us to worship him is through the means of a sacrifice. So by bringing that sacrifice, David's saying, I'm doing what you're telling me to do because you've given us a way to have a right standing with you through sacrifice. So I can offer you praise. Before I couldn't because I was unrepentant in my heart. Now, I'm a changed man. I can offer this sacrifice. And I want to praise you, God. I'm created for your glory. But sin has taken that away. I want to praise you. I want to be joyful in my heart. I don't want to offer you songs of praise while I have bitterness, resentment, sexual immorality, lust, greed, all this controlling me on the inside. I don't want to do that, God. So he pleads with God, use me. True believers will want to be used by God, not to impress others, 
that's a sin need to put away that sin to be really used by god also we don't desire the position we desire the work whatever position it might be even if that means kneeling down and washing someone's feet and finally the third and final sphere of responsibility once again the horizontal aspect of david's and our relationships this time the focus is toward believers god use me not only to bless unbelievers to praise you but also to bless believers fellow christians in our case look at verses 18 through 19 as david ends his prayer with this final plea may it please you to prosper zion zion is city of jerusalem god's people david as the king sinned and when he sinned he affected the whole nation he had to repent so now that i've repented the nation can also experience your blessing is what he's saying may it please you to prosper zion to build up the walls of jerusalem to make it secure by my sin the enemy has now been given an opportunity to mock so please you do this then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous yes we'll bring sacrifices but then we'll bring it with the right heart attitude you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous and burnt offerings offered whole then bulls will be offered on your altar david knew his sin affected more than himself it impacted others so he says god because of me don't don't withhold your blessing from the nation now i'm fixing my life i'm setting it right so open open the channels of mercy so they too can bring sacrifices my act hindered that but by my by my confession i can now be a means through which others can call upon you with joy as well david wants to be a blessing to other believers that's why he prayed to god use me to bless your children yes we are not in a role like david we're not kings but our sins do affect others and when those sins remain unconfessed sooner or later it will affect others even more i tell you many families are weak because the members of the household could be one young person hiding their sin living in the dark closet your mother your father may not know but the lord knows it could be one man the father or the mother hiding or sometimes colluding together living in sin it will affect god's work is hindered when there is unconfessed sin in the camp many churches are weak because members are having unconfessed sin and leadership just lets it go many leaders are in sin churches are weak unclean vessel is limited in its use obviously god does not is not ever going to have perfect vessels despite our sinful tendencies god still uses but the effectiveness is mitigated by our sin when we confess this is whole six weeks before in the seventh week is about what repentance let's not forget that it's about repentance when you truly repent rightly repent there's blessing So David says I've no confessed 
Lord, use me to bless other believers. We need to have the desire. I want to be used to be a, a means through which others can be growing in the Lord. So three prayer petitions when we sin. Lord, please forgive and cleanse me. Lord, please change me. Lord, please use me. And once again, let me remind you, the basis of David's confidence and our confidence in approaching God when we sin to seek his forgiveness, go back to verse 1, is based on God's character, his unfailing love and his great compassion. Don't forget that. This is the kind of God we have. This is the God of the Bible. God who gave his son for us. That's the basis of our confidence to approach God as sinners. We need to remind ourselves of this constantly and not hide in our sins, but to openly come out and acknowledge them to him. The God of the Bible is full of love and full of compassion. Many of you are familiar with the story of Abraham. In Genesis 22, we're told of God commanding Abraham to offer his son, the promised one, Isaac, the one he loved very much as a sacrifice. God names that son by name, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Offer him as a sacrifice. As Abraham takes Isaac out up Mount Moriah and he prepares to plunge the knife right into Isaac's chest, angel of the Lord from heaven shouted out, saying, don't do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. I know that you fear God. And in Isaac's place, there was a ram nearby that was offered as a sacrifice and Isaac was spared. Centuries later, God would send his son to walk upon Mount Calvary alone not to die for his sins but for yours and mine this time though Jesus' loud cries for deliverance my God, my God why have you forsaken me would go unheard there would be no voice from heaven to say stop God the Father himself took that terrible knife of judgment, the judgment for our sins and plunged it into his son's heart. Why? So that you and I can look at the father and look at the son and confidently say, now I know that you are a God filled with unfailing love and great compassion. And that's why I can come to you no matter how much I've messed up. I can come to you for mercy because you delight in showing mercy. And as I receive that mercy, I can freely grant it to others. I can let go of those who offended me. I don't need to keep those records anymore. Just as you have forgiven me and blotted it out of my book, I too can do that. Leave all judgment into your hands. 
it's on the basis of this character of God. God, filled with unfailing love and great compassion, we sinners can go to God continually. When we have sinned and pray, Lord, please forgive and cleanse me of all my sins. Lord, please change me, the sinner who is always prone to sinning and who cannot change on his own. Lord, please use me as you see fit for your glory and for the benefit of those who are not yet your children and those who are yours. Let's pray. Father, would you please seal these truths to our heart as we rest in your character. For from him and through him and to him be the glory. Jesus, what can we say other than thank you. Thank you and forgive us. Help us have mercy on us. Do with our lives as you see fit because we know you're a just God who can do no wrong. Thank you. I pray, Lord, for especially the members of this church these last few weeks as we've gone through this subject, something that was unplanned, but eternity you had this plan, Lord, that this would be preached. I pray that the significance of true repentance would not be lost in any of our lives, Lord, starting with me, that we would be those who are truly marked with a godly repentance and that we would grow in our repentance and that we would live a life that pleases you. Thank you for today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.